time for the April 28, 2023 edition of Weekly Signals Weekly Review, a personal recollection of the last 168 hours of history, broadcasting on Hairball Awareness Day from the University of California at Irvine on KUCI 88.9 FM. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And, as always... Making every day a little bit brighter, <laughs> Mahler, the fake news dog. <laughs> Woo! Oh, thank you, Mahler. Yeah. Today, yeah. we'll be talking about feral cats, trigger time, stealing a thumb, Barbie dolls, and so much more. But first, did you ever see the Aurora Borealis? Mike? I did. You did? Yes. Where was that? Where were you? I was in Alaska with my dad about five years ago. We went on. We went up there, uh-huh. and we were in Denali Park. Denali. And it was a little, little hazy. The, the the cloud cover was a little bit hazy, but uh-huh. you could definitely see that. What kind of colors were there? They were the what you see, like that lime greenish, kind of a purplish hue. That's a lot of colors coming at you. Lime. That's sort of a greenish, greenish, one. greenish purple. lime, purple. green and purple. Yeah. Kind of like the 90s. Kind of like the 90s. Yeah. It was Avocado beautiful. and aubergine, <laughs> I remember. Yeah. yeah, it was beautiful. It was, And just to experience it, there's something that you kind of feel when you're watching it. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of cool. Well, How about the, yourself? Have you ever no, experienced no. it? Okay. Uh-uh. From the Los Angeles Times. I may soon, though. Oh, yes, yes. That's From right. the Los Angeles Times, the Aurora Borealis, as you say, the scientific name for the dazzling natural northern light show is typically seen only near the North Pole. You get the higher north you get, Mm -hmm. the brighter it gets. Mm -hmm. But this year, a severe geomagnetic storm set off by eruptions on the sun brought the light show south to Northern California. Mm. The sightings of northern lights in back-to-back months in our state are the product of the sun entering its most active phase during its 11-year cycle, which probably will peak in late 2024 or early 2025. Mm -hmm. That's according to Bill Murtaugh, Program Coordinator for the Space Weather Prediction Center in Boulder, Colorado, part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Mm -hmm. We're in a ramped-up, elevated stage from now for the next four, five, six years, Murtaugh said. We'll certainly see more auroras. If you missed this one, stay tuned. There's more to come. Okay. Murtaugh said people from the Carolinas, North South Carolina, I'm thinking that's kind of our latitude. Yeah, it would be. Northern Texas, Northern Arizona. Yeah, wow. Colorado and Central California. Central California reported views of the Northern Lights late last Sunday. Hmm. These geomagnetic storms have the potential to affect spacecraft operations and degrade GPS navigation as well as disrupt power systems. But space weather experts say those issues are rare and unlikely to be noticed by the general public. With more geomagnetic storms expected over the next few months and years, you can keep up with the space weather updates for another chance at the spectacular view. There are several Aurora Borealis apps available. For Apple, Mahler recommends My Aurora Forecast and Alerts. He likes that one a lot. Yeah. 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 I agree, Mahler. It's pretty fun. Yeah. yeah so yeah. if someone sees them, yeah. they yeah. can tell you where they are. Yeah. And kind how of bright it that, was. That spot. And so you know, well, there's a sighting. It's getting close. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. yeah nice. 
He loves his apps. I will say that Mahler does. Yeah. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he's working. He's out there right now. Yeah. He can't get his head. <laughs> you know, I, I looking up at us anymore. I, he used to be like digging for bones and yeah. things like that. No, he's down there. He's he's got his eye watch. Yeah, you know, he's got that. Yeah, he really likes that. So yeah, what a dog. Yeah, he is. It's amazing. Did you have to deal with a feral cat? A feral cat? Well, as a matter of fact, Mr. Callahan, uh, way back in the day, uh-huh. right off Sand Canyon Boulevard Drive, yeah. Sand Canyon Drive, there was this little office. That we that, shared. That we shared. Uh-huh. And we, as I recall, there were quite a few. Well, there was a whole herd of them over there. They were there. a herd yeah. of feral cats. I think cats. what people did is they dumped their cats there. This yeah. is long enough ago that the Marine base was still in operation. Yeah. The El Toro Marine Corps Air Station at El Toro. And... I think what happened is a lot of people getting shipped out, getting shipped out yeah. where they would dump their cats yeah. over in this area by yeah. they, they saw Mike and I thinking, <laughs> well, they could use a cat. Yes. And yeah. also the cat uh, that we picked up the there best. with the feral cats. One cat decided it didn't want to be feral. No. The, and it just walked up the stairs where our office was and never left. Never left. My yeah. best friend, Uma. Yeah. Yeah. From New Zealand National News, a competition in New Zealand which would have seen children hunt and kill feral cats for a possible prize of $250 was canceled following public backlash. Now, this was for a, a school fundraiser. Oh, my goodness. But the school didn't know it. Yeah. Or at least that's what they said. They didn't know how these people were going to raise funds. Mm-hmm. Measures to tackle New Zealand's feral cat population have been the topic of heated debate in the country because feral cats are posing a major threat to native wildlife and biodiversity. This is because they eat endangered birds and eggs, lizards, bats, and insects, too. I guess this means, what I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. is if there's any developers out there that (laughs) kill endangered birds and eggs and lizards and bats or insects, especially in New Zealand, the potential for a Bounty out on their heads, I guess. Yeah. Wouldn't you think? Yeah, I would think yeah. so. I would think so. Tit for tat. For tat. <coughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Potential entrants in the North Canterbury hunting competition were warned not to kill a person's pet cat. That would you know, be a real bummer. Yeah. yeah. And the children who produced any dead microchipped cats would have their entry into the competition disqualified. <laughs> so I guess after they got the cat, yeah. they'd look for the chip. Yeah, I guess yeah. they would. They wouldn't. How would you know until you? Yeah, yeah. It's just like Hunger Games. Out Sorry, here. Jimmy. Yeah, well, this is like yeah. You're disqualified. Yeah, you're disqualified. We cut the cat's ear off, and we found a chip in it. <laughs> the event is held annually oh, and typically God. sees hundreds of participants, including children, compete to kill the likes of wild pigs, deer, and hare. Oh, you know, bunnies. Yeah. This is the first year that cats have been included in the competitive category. I guess they were in another category. Not, it's just like freelance well, that, cat shooting. This sounds like Lord of the Flies to me. I mean, you turn a bunch of kids loose yeah. and tell them to kill little four-legged furry things. That doesn't really sound like a good idea. Yeah. If you've never dealt with a feral cat, may I recommend a donation to KUCI instead? Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial free, free form, free speech radio, KUCI 88.9 FM.
From BBC News, a recent rapid heating of the world's oceans has alarmed scientists concerned that it will add to global warming. This month, the global sea surface hit a new record high temperature. It has never warmed this much this quickly. Scientists don't fully understand why this has happened, but they worry that, combined with other weather events, the world's temperature could reach an alarming new level by the end of next year. Experts believe that a strong El Nino weather event, a weather system that heats the ocean, will also set in over the next months. Warmer oceans can kill off marine life, lead to more extreme weather, and raise sea levels. Yeah. They are also less efficient at absorbing planet-warming greenhouse gases, That's the right. warming oceans. That's right. So a big spike in the global sea temperature may be coming soon. The oceans are a gigantic shock absorber for heat on our planet. And if we continue to heat it up, we're really facing a serious decline in the ability of the planet to sustain life. Just, just throwing that out there. Remember last week when uh, Elon Musk's SpaceX rocket exploded into bits? Yes. Yeah, after its launch, right after right its after launch. Right after its launch, yeah. yeah. And remember how Elon called the explosion a rapid, unscheduled disassembly. Yes. He didn't want to say it blew up. <laughs> yeah. And he didn't want to be disappointed. He called it a success. Yeah, he did call know? it a success. Well, this week we had another rapid, unscheduled disassembly <laughs> from Space Flight Magazine. A Japanese company lost contact with a small robotic spacecraft it sent to the moon. Analysis of data from... Hakuto-R suggests it ran out of propellant during its final approach and instead of landing softly, crashed into the lunar surface. On live video streamed by the company, a pall of silence enveloped the control room in Tokyo where iSpace engineers, mostly young and from around the world, looked with concerned expressions at their screens. Did you see those photos? I did not see this. Yeah, they looked... Well, they were very sad, it looked like. You know, they were disappointed, I yeah, guess. Yeah. The company reported that Hakuto R ran out of gas. Oh. oh. It's propellant. Yeah. Just wow. ran out. Based on this, it has been determined that there is a high probability that the lander eventually made a hard landing on the moon's surface. Yep. It crashed. It crashed. Takeshi Hakamada, the chief executive of iSpace, said he was very, very proud of the result nonetheless. That's a good way to put it. You know, I well, mean, they got that far. Yeah. Whoever didn't put enough fuel in there is not going to get a bonus check at well, the end of the Well, they think month. it was the data. Okay, uh, the with data. the data obtained from the spacecraft, the company will be able to apply lessons learned yeah. to the next two missions. Yeah. So they were probably putting out more gas than they had at that time. Yeah. and. And we're reading the, the fuel gauge wrong, I guess. Okay. You know how that goes. <laughs> this iSpace lander was expected to be the first step toward a new paradigm of space exploration, with governments, research institutions, and companies joining together to send scientific experiments and other cargo to the moon. The beginning of that lunar transport transition will now have to wait for two commercial landers, built by American companies and financed by NASA to be launched to the moon in the coming months. So it's not too far off. Just a real quick question for you. Uh -huh. I, I saw a documentary this week about Voyager, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. And when they were launched in the 19, 1975 or 77, 
the whole sole purpose of the of the Voyager was to essentially explore our solar system. Yeah. And what they soon realized was that they could just keep going. That and they did. They left our solar system. That's these two spacecraft solely for the purpose of gaining an understanding of the of outer space and of yeah. Neptune and Saturn and all those other planets. Now everything that goes up into space is essentially in service to making money for somebody. Is that a fair way? Is that a fair read on what we're doing now? Exploration of space is... Well, it's is the old private-public partnership. Yeah. And I think our government isn't quite as much into it as it once was, yeah. and that money is... Private industries have it. taken yeah. it over, yeah. They're hoping to mine the moon. Yeah. Well, speaking of another rapid, unscheduled disassembly, from Slate magazine, in the 24 hours after Twitter last week eliminated the blue check mark that historically served as a means of identifying public agencies, at least 11 new accounts began impersonating the Los Angeles Police Department. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, God. More than 20 Oops. claimed to be agencies of the federal government. Oh, my God. Someone pretending to be the mayor of New York City promised to create a Department of Traffic and Parking Enforcement and slash police funding by 70 percent. I, I don't know who that would be. Someone who, I guess, needs parking places. Yeah, it was somebody who's got a lot of tickets. Elon Musk's decision to stop giving check marks to people and groups verified to be who they said they were and instead offering them to anyone who paid for one is the latest dumb move at Twitter, yeah. the social media giant he vowed to remake since he acquired it last year for $44 billion. And I must say, he did remake it. He has. Yeah. Give him credit, Nathan. Yeah. He has really remade Twitter. <laughs> Or unmade it. Uh, well, yeah. yeah. He's put his imprint on it. He, he yeah. has. The changes have convulsed a platform that once seemed indispensable for following news as it broke around the world. Information on Twitter is now increasingly unreliable. Accounts that impersonate public officials, government agencies, and celebrities have proliferated. So have propaganda and disinformation that threatens to further erode trust in public institutions. I wonder if that's kind of what he wants. I mean, maybe that's a duh statement by me, but uh, is yeah. that what Elon really wants, is to do what... Uh, uh, to, to essentially confuse people. What Steve Bannon wants? I don't think you could plan to do it the way that he did it. I don't think that could be a plan. I've talked to three close friends who are just looking for something other than Twitter. A lot of people seem to be on the search for another version of Twitter, that isn't a mess. I don't, I just what do they an, use it for? Anecdotally. What do they use it for? Well, to get news. A lot of people that, I, that I know, or, you know, they, they, they'll go on. If they hear something on the, you know, in the ether, they yeah. go on Twitter to see what's going on with it. So, there are a number of fine publications they might They are. Uh, there are. Yes, you're right. You're right. Referred to. Yeah. Yes. From The Verge. If you've shopped around for an EV in the past couple of years, you've probably had sticker shop. EVs are expensive. Yes, they are. The average selling price for an EV was at $58,940 in March, according to data from Kelly Blue Book. That's nearly $15,000 more than the average selling price for a new non-luxury gas-powered car. Yeah. But Chevrolet's Bolt EV and Bolt EUV were evidence that the EV market didn't have to be this way. 
at least until GM announced that it would be ending production of them later this year so that it can instead make a bunch of electric pickup trucks. And that sounds kind of sad to me. I, I would assume, I, I don't know for sure, but the, the trucks will probably weigh more. Oh, yeah. They'll be elevated higher. They'll probably use more pig iron. Yeah. And we can uh, blame GM for this, but I, I blame the population, too what they prefer these days for transportation. I, I really don't know what all the trucks are about. I don't either. Most of them aren't used as trucks. Right. The smaller Bolt EV started at $27,495, including destination. The slightly larger EUV model ran $28,795. On top of that, the Bolts were among the few EVs you can buy today that qualify for the full $7,500 tax credit from the federal government. Uh, this was a brand new EV for a, a total cost of well under $30,000. There's literally nothing quite like it on the road, and it's a shame that GM has decided it no longer has a future. Did we get a rationale, a reason from GM? Well, they're just going to move over to electric pickup trucks. That was their... Is it the bigger... And, you know, they don't make as much. That's their, yeah, the bigger... their bottom line. When I bought my Volt, they said, we can't deal with you as much because you're not giving us as much. And, yeah, yeah. and we'd much prefer to sell you. They literally told me this. They'd much prefer to sell me a big SUV. Yeah. That old saying, I don't know if it was Ford executive or someone said... Bigger cars, bigger profits. Yeah, that's pretty much what it boils down to, and that's what they're about. Yeah, The Bolt wasn't a design stunner, but it was affordable and practical. It's a bad decision by GM, but it's also proof that the invisible hand of the marketplace doesn't know what it's doing. Yeah. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us on the web at KUCI.org, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9, on our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at KUCIFM. <laughs> From Politico. In October, Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis proclaimed crime in New York City was out of control and blamed it on George Soros. Of course, he was out there mugging people. <laughs> Another Sunshine State liar, Donald Trump, offered his native city, New York, up as a Democrat-run dystopia, one of those places where the middle class used to flock to live the American dream, which are now war zones, literally war zones. Yeah. Why would he say literal war zones? Obviously someone who's not been in a literal war zone. No. Yeah. yeah. In reality, New York City is far and away the safest part of the U.S. mainland when it comes to gun violence, while the regions Florida and Texas, red states, have per capita firearm death rates, homicides and suicides, three to four times higher than New York. On a regional basis, it's the southern states and cities and rural areas alike where the rate of deadly gun violence is most acute, regions where Republicans have dominated state governments for decades. Someone living in the most rural counties of South Carolina is more than three times likely to be killed by gunshot than someone living in the equally rural counties of New York's Adirondacks or the impoverished rural counties facing Mexico across the lower reaches of the Rio Grande. Nathan, let me ask you a question about that. Okay. 
when you live in a state like Florida or Texas where there's a proliferation of guns and you don't have a gun, don't you feel an enormous amount of pressure to have a gun because you live in an environment that is so overrun with people who have guns? Is this kind of a perverse reinforcement of this craziness? Oh, I think it spreads. Yeah. I think if you don't want to have a gun, you won't have a gun. It might even make you less likely to have one. I think people who don't have an opinion on it yeah. are likely to get a gun if they see all their neighbors getting guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just like buying pickup trucks. Yeah. The reasons for this disparity goes beyond modern policy differences and extends back to events that predate not only the American party system, but the advent of shotguns, revolvers, ammunition cartridges, breech-loaded rifles, and the American Republic itself. So the reason in disparities in gun violence goes back to that. It's not just a party difference. It's the result of differences at once regional, cultural, and historical. The reason the U.S. has had strong differences is because it was settled by rival colonial projects that had very little in common, often despised one another and spread without regard for today's state boundaries. Understanding how these historical forces affect policy issues from gun control to COVID-19 responses can provide important insights into how to craft interventions that might make us all safer and happier. I think regulations is one thing. Education, regulations. I also think that the mythology of the settlement of the West and its relationship to guns is a big part of this story as well. Building coalitions for gun reform at both the state and federal level would benefit from regionally tailored messaging that acknowledges traditions and attitudes around gun and the appropriate use of deadly violence are much deeper than mere party allegiance. Speaking about rival colonial projects that have very little in common, from the Daily Beast, Kyle Rittenhouse became a GOP celebrity when he got away with killing two unarmed persons in Kenosha, Wisconsin, almost three years ago. But the Bonneville County Republican Central Committee in Idaho sunk to a ghoulish new low this weekend with a fundraiser that underscored the rights of session with firearms. Trigger time with Kyle Rittenhouse. Oh, my God read the committee's online promotion for the opportunity to meet the baby-faced killer. The promo said that the exclusive event for VIPs at Guns and Gear near Idaho Falls would include rifles, rounds, and range time. A little bit of alliteration there for the folks. There were refreshments in a VIP lounge, along with a chance for photos and autographs. Tickets were auctioned. There was also a Ruger AR-556 autographed by Rittenhouse and painted red, white, and blue with a floor bid of $3,000. From Reuters News Service, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear bids by ExxonMobil Corporation, Suncor Energy Incorporated, Chevron Corporation, and other corporations to move lawsuits filed by state and local governments accusing the oil companies of worsening climate change out of state courts and into federal courts. When you were saying that, I, I was thinking, is this a hokey dokey? Because <laughs> you're waiting for the other shoe to drop because this is a court that has been very friendly to big business. It sounds good. 
Well, yeah, I think they've actually decided something based on law and not on and, politics. Yeah, principles. Surprising. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. The justices turned away five appeals by the oil companies of lower court decisions that determined that the lawsuits belonged in state court, a venue often seen as more favorable to plaintiffs than federal courts, just yep. like you said. Yeah. The lawsuits were filed by the state of Rhode Island and municipalities or counties in California, Colorado, Hawaii, and Maryland. A separate appeal filed by the oil companies challenging lower court decisions in cases out of New Jersey and Delaware is still pending before the Supreme Court. A joint statement from the California cities of Santa Cruz, San Mateo, and Richmond and Marin County said the oil companies knew the dangers of fossil fuels which they said contribute to extreme precipitation and floods, wildfires, and other climate-related woes, mm -hmm. but opted instead to deceive consumers. Mm -hmm. We've known that for quite a while. That's, yeah. And it's fact. And it's, it's fact. It's not that these people just said that. The yep. oil companies have admitted that. They've been forced to admit that. President Joe Biden's administration in March urged the justices not to take up the appeal by Exxon and Suncor, arguing that no federal questions had been raised. And I think that's the key there, mm -hmm. why they made that decision. Mm -hmm. That marked the reversal of the position taken by former Donald Trump administration when the Supreme Court last considered the issue. Yep. So good. Yeah, that's, that's very good news. Yeah. Accountability. From yeah. New Scientist. Mm -hmm. Students in human anatomy classes aren't often taught about individual differences and instead focus on organs that follow textbook descriptions. But these differences could help to inform healthcare decisions. There's a sort of formulaic approach centered on what's average and what most people experience. That's versus individualized medicine, where you see if a person has specific features about their digestive system that might be contributing to what's going on and which doesn't meet the status quo. Concerned that important differences could be going undetected, researchers at North Carolina State University and their colleagues measured the digestive organs of 21 female and 24 male human adult cadavers that had been donated. They found that, on average, the male cadaver's small intestines were slightly over 13 feet in length, while those of the female cadavers were nearly a foot longer. Really? Yeah. A statistical analysis suggests that this difference wasn't a chance finding. If women's small intestines are longer and there's more surface area, that means they can pull more from everything that they eat. Mm. There's more nutrition going on there, mm. said Amanda Hale, one of the researchers at North Carolina State University. This added length probably is helping them to better absorb fat and other nutrients if needed for pregnancy and breastfeeding. Yeah. Well. The small intestine is all about absorption, absorption, absorption. I think my real estate agent said that once. <laughs> he added, it's where you get the vast majority of your nutrients from everything you eat. Good to know. I don't know if it's good to know, but it's interesting. Yeah. Women are built to extract more nutrients out of their... If you ever want an extra foot of intestine, yeah. you know where to go. You know where to go. Did you ever play with a Barbie doll? No. Really? No. Are you sure? Well, Maybe. Yeah, I'm just thinking, thinking back. There was a time in my life where... Did you ever, like, remove its head or anything? <laughs> no, I didn't dismember no. it, no. But I was interested in the contours of the Barbie doll. Yeah? Yeah. They seemed very interesting to me at the time. Right. Yeah. 
I remember somebody gave a Barbie doll to my daughter, and she left it at my grandmother's house. Mm -hmm. My grandmother was getting senile. Mm. You know, I don't know mm -hmm. if senile's were, but she, her mental capacities were Cognitive going down. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. And one day I saw her in there, and she, was, she had the Barbie doll in her hand, head down, you know, mm. with the legs up. Mm. And she was chewing on the legs. <laughs> my grandmother's chewing on the legs. Mm -hmm. You know, and Barbie's hair is hanging down, and her <laughs> yeah. little feet are sticking up, yes. and my grandma's chewing on it, and I'm thinking, what the uh, hell's going on here? Yeah. And Granny, Granny looks at me and says, these carrots are sure tough. <laughs> wow. From The Guardian, Barbie is launching its first doll with Down syndrome in an effort to help more children find a toy that represents them. Mattel bosses said they want to bring out the doll to enable all children to see themselves in Barbie. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a good idea. I mean, the, I know, know, maybe, maybe the, the Down syndrome Barbie is good, but I don't know if all children should see themselves in Barbie. That sounds yeah. kind of fascist to me. Yeah, it, yeah, it is something about the toy industry and the desire to essentially capture the imagination yeah. of children everywhere. And put it in jail. And put it in jail. <laughs> They partnered with the da National Down Syndrome Society in the yeah. U.S., Barbie did, Mattel, to bring the product to market. The move was welcomed by charities with Carol Boys, chief executive of the U.K. Down Syndrome Association, saying children in our community will be able to play with a doll that represents them. Yeah. See, I don't, I don't know if that's really good. When I ever played with a figurine, yeah. a doll, yes. I didn't imagine me as the doll. I imagined me as controlling something that was human-like. Yeah. And so I, it was like a play, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, if, if I had a devil doll, which would be really cool, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't think that doll represented me. Right. Or maybe I would. I don't know. But that wouldn't be the first thing I would think. Yeah. When I had those little toy soldiers. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, you, I didn't think I'm one of those toy soldiers. Yeah. In fact, I, that's exactly the opposite thing. Yeah. I just wanted to see them fly up in the air and yeah. get blown up. Get blown up. Yeah. Yeah, that was the fun part. Yeah. What, for me, when I had all of my little plastic army men that we'd uh -huh. run around, and we'd roll around in the dirt and all that kind of stuff to reenact uh -huh. battles, we were reenacting re stuff that we saw in a movie. Yeah. It you was know. like you were a little director. <laughs> the... Uh, down Syndrome Barbie is part of the Barbie Fashionistas line, which was launched in 2022. It also features a Barbie with a prosthetic leg, a Barbie who uses a wheelchair, and male dolls that are thinner and less muscular. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Now, now, now this, there's, uh, there's a lot of good to be said about that story, uh, that, that representation-wise. That's good. But let's also not forget that this is part of the big push for the big Barbie summer spectacular there, that somebody, I forgot what studio is coming out with a Barbie movie. Oh, just keep in mind. This is part of a media blitz to bring attention to Barbie because uh, there's a big summer blockbuster movie coming out called Barbie. And here I am. Well, giving, unwittingly giving fodder to un this unwittingly. Yeah. I'm just letting, just letting well, I don't know. I know you can't escape these things you anymore. Can't. You In fact, can't. I yeah. encourage everyone not to see the movie. There you go. How do I know what's going on? Do you really want to see yourself in Barbie? No. Last week, mm -hmm. it was the 17th, and I just wanted to remind people, not only of the Boston Marathon, a good thing, 
Did you ever run a marathon? No. Yeah. Like, did you? Yeah, You're a I runner. Ran, you ran were... a couple of them. Did you? Yeah. I ran the the length. It was they were improvised by uh, cross country teams. In other words, they they made a course. You ran it. Okay. They didn't have the Los Angeles Marathon when I was running. Wow. I don't know if they barely had the uh, Boston Marathon back when I was running, which <clears throat> was about 1966 or so. Yeah. Uh, a woman applied to run in the Boston Marathon, but they rejected her because she's she a was, woman. She's a woman. This was Bobby Gibb. So what she did is she put on a hoodie yeah. and looked as male as she could, oh, wow. hid in the bushes, and jumped into the race. Wow. Yeah. And, <laughs> and she's running along, you know, and it was kind of apparent to some people that this was a woman in the race. Yeah. But instead of them pushing her out, the runners there, the runners that she was with said, no, we're going to stand up for you. All the guys said, yeah. good for you, man. <laughs> Run it. By the time she went, reached Wesley College in Boston, the news of her run had spread, and the female students were waiting for her, jumping and screaming. <laughs> so everybody was pretty excited, you know, about this happening. The governor of Massachusetts met her at the finish line and shook her hand. Yeah, the first woman to ever run the marathon had finished in the top third. So... There. But she had to do it clandestinely, though. Bobby Gibb. Yeah. Bobby Gibb, yeah. Well. But just to put things in perspective yeah, yeah, yeah. about what we're talking about, about gender and all of that, yeah, yeah. it wasn't that long ago. No, it wasn't. When women could not run. Yeah. And, and things did happen just, in the 60s that were positive. Yeah. It, Here's the, the, the actually public opinion turned right there. It is maddening and crazy. For what reason could she not run? I mean, you, you know, you kind of think to yourself, well, why? What would wasn't you? ladylike? And I'm sure that's kind of the, yeah, the logic yeah, back then. It wasn't it. ladylike. Yeah. And finally, from Artnet, more than five years after he allegedly stole a thumb from a statue of a Chinese warrior in a local museum, a Delaware man admitted guilt to a misdemeanor. Michael Rahana, 28, once faced a potential prison term of up to 30 years for the theft which occurred during an ugly Christmas sweater party at the Franklin Institute in December of 2017. The first trial in the case ended in a mistrial when the jury couldn't agree on the verdict, and the second was delayed due to COVID. The Franklin Institute ex exhibition, Terracotta Warriors of the First Emperor, featured 10 life-sized warrior statues from the Terracotta Army buried in the tomb of China's first emperor, Qin Shi Wang. Video surveillance captured Rohana wearing a Phillies baseball cap and a bright green sweater, an ugly sweater, posing for a selfie with an arm wrapped around a 2,000-year-old sculpture known as the Cavalry Man, which was insured for $4.5 million. As he walked away, Rohana seemed to break something off the figure's left hand and place it in his pocket. Oh my God. When FBI Special Agent Jacob Archer turned up at Rohana's Delaware residence in February of 2018, Rohana immediately confessed to his crime and returned the stolen digit. China was furious, demanding that the U.S. severely punish the perpetrator. When Rohana took the stand, he admitted he didn't know why he had stolen the thumb. Every time I see this video now, I'm trying to figure out what was going through your mind. What were you thinking? I don't know how I could have been so stupid, he said. These charges were made for art thieves, Rohana's lawyer argued in court. Think like Ocean's Eleven or Mission Impossible, she told jurors. 
Rohana wasn't in ninja clothing sneaking around the museum. He was a drunk kid in a bright green, ugly Christmas sweater. You can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.